0: Hello, everybody. I'm Jason Mikula, and welcome to Fintech Business Podcast, where I'll be interviewing leaders in fintech, banking, and crypto. Some quick housekeeping notes before we get started. This series will be, in addition to Fintech Recap, the monthly news show Alex Johnson of Fintech Takes and I host together. If you already subscribe to my newsletter, you'll receive it automatically every time a new episode is published. And if you're interested in being a guest or sponsoring an episode, drop me a line at jason at fintechbusinessweekly.com. In this first episode, I sat down with Paolo Arduino, the CTO of Bitfinex, live at Money 2020 in Amsterdam. We had a chance to talk about his personal background, including how he's been coding since eight years old, how he scaled Bitfinex's infrastructure to handle millions of orders per second, why Bitfinex thinks crypto can democratize capital raising and what it's doing in Kazakhstan, and why Tether doesn't face the same kinds of risks that led to Terra's collapse. With that, let's get into the episode. I'm here at Money 2020, first day here in Amsterdam with Paolo, whose last name I cannot pronounce, Uh, and he is the CTO of Bitfinex. Paolo, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for, for having me. Uh, Let's get started talking a little
1: bit about your personal background. What led you to the current role as CTO at Bitfinex? So my role as CTO at Bitfinex has started in 2016 actually before I I joined actually Bitfinex in 2014 as a a developer. My experience um, being a developer since almost my entire life. I started coding at um, eight years old Um, has been in um, uh, parallel computing, uh, di- uh, decentralized applications, and distributed networks. So I was asked to step into Bitfinex to um, work on the matching engine. In 2014, the crypto industry was still at its beginnings, but was already growing It was attracting many new traders so most of the the, uh, cryptocurrency exchanges back then started as very simple websites they were more like e-commerces rather than fully fledged trading platforms so my role role was taking the bitfinex infrastructure and preparing for scale we had uh, in 2014 there were already um, traders that uh, were experiencing lags on all these cryptocurrency exchanges and we were seeing the necessity to start scaling up the number of the ability of processing many many more orders per second. So when I joined the matching engine that is the core part of the of, uh, trading platform that is the one that um, you know handles all the incoming orders from all the traders and executes them, match them and so on, uh, was doing 50 orders per second and now you know, I've fast forward so many years um, it's eight years. It's one million orders per second. So of course, it didn't pass from 50 to one million in one single day. That my my job was actually uh, keep improving the performance on a weekly basis, monthly basis, to 50, 100, 300 thousand ten thousand and then millions right so that is my um, was the reason why I joined and then uh, in 2016 I became the CTO I started leading the development uh, of all the other components of, of Bitfinex um, from uh, the, the user interface to um, to all the reporting services, the uh, high-frequency trading uh, components that are really critical, we are seeing now a really interesting movements from more um, from uh, uh, trading firms that are really uh, famous in in the traditional trading uh, world. Uh, that are now jumping into crypto trading, right, so they they, they started um, and in the past years they looked at crypto trading as something, you know, quite quite exotic, but now they are really interested to step in and use all the technologies that they developed for the traditional trading markets for the last 30 years uh, into, and bring them into uh, into cryptocurrency trading so that's why with Bitfinex we started focusing before any other crypto exchanges uh, we started focusing on, um, on colocation services on high frequency trading or low, low latency trading um, and so on and so forth and today um, one of the reasons why we are here at Money2020 in Amsterdam is um, we also are developing a suite of products for e commerce for payments, because we believe that um, um, cryptocurrency exchanges have evolved so, mu- so much in the last years, from pure trading to all, let's say, a cloud of, of services around uh, the around trading. That is. Banking that is uh, lending that is uh, um, payments that is first uh, in high-frequency trading that is uh, credit cards, debit cards, and so on and so forth. I mean, you,
0: you raise a really interesting point around uh, sort of this exploration, continued exploration of different use cases of cryptocurrency, right? I mean, one of the Original ideas behind Bitcoin was you know it's digital cash you're going to use it for payments. That idea has sort of evolved over time, at least with Bitcoin specifically, to being you know "quote unquote" digital gold or a store of value. Um, and then, as far as how you know platforms have evolved or expanded, it seems like you're seeing this go in both directions, right? Things like Robinhood have added cryptocurrency trading, uh, and vice versa, other crypto platforms are adding equities. I mean, how do you sort of think about the role that Bitfinex plays in the ecosystem and meeting
1: meeting the needs of those different kinds of use cases? So, I think this is actually the part that I like the most, right, as you you said it perfectly, we have seen uh, CME adding uh, crypto futures, but, uh, and Bitfinex uh, obtained in September last year Obtain a license in Kazakhstan to start offering securities. So actually, the two worlds are colliding in a way, and uh, uh, there is a lot that uh, we need to learn from the traditional financial industry, but a lot that we need to reform, as well as the traditional financial industry needs to learn a lot from us. So we, I believe, one of the most interesting aspects of the of what we have been doing really well in crypto. Has been the user experience. We come. The traditional financial industry has developed services always around the institution rather than the customer. Mm-hmm. So it feels to me that when it's if you talk about onboarding, when you come and talk about trading and so on and so forth, the priority has been always the institution. When we instead of cryptocurrency platforms always started, you know, in 2014 there were no institutions approaching Bitcoin actually. So all the onboarding processes, all the trading services have always started to have documentation that was public, market data was public and free to use. The traditional financial world has always had this concept of paid trading data. It costs a lot of money for retail people to access trading data, and especially high frequency uh, tick by tick data. So you you have to go to Bloomberg, you have to go to the big financial service providers in order to access that data, it costs a ton of money. While crypto is all about freedom, and also freedom in data. So on the other side, the stability, the you know, the uh, quality of the services that the traditional financial services can offer is higher than the average crypto, um, crypto trading services, because they have, of course, developed these technologies for such a more long time. They have, um, they have uh, developers that are highly specialized in in trading, in developing trading services. But we are getting there. So the two worlds are colliding and you know what i love about bitfinex is we are developing our own new niche that will become i believe will become actually the next unicorn in terms of financial services in the future that is uh, security tokens so um we are seeing definitely crypto changes start offering um Trading of equities like um, um, Robinhood uh, is offering uh, Google and, and and stock trading, but also some of our Bitfinex competitors are offering Google, Apple, Amazon uh, stocks trading. Right? I believe that is interesting, but not our end goal. I I'm a form. I, I'm a really. A big believer in Bitcoin and its mission in terms of make, creating a more democratic access to financial services um, so for me the way the approach that we're having with Bitfinex and Bitfinex Securities as I said we got a license in Kazakhstan to offer uh, security tokens the way we're approaching and using this license is actually creating a platform where small and mid-sized companies can, can do IPOs and can have healthy secondary markets. So we want to be the place, to summarize it, we want to be the place where small and mid-companies can raise capital or raise debt and have secondary markets. Right now these companies have really hard time to access the London Stock Exchange. Or the aim, or you know, they have to go on really secondary um, stock exchanges that have really low liquidity. They have, they are really closed from uh, and not really accessible to the outside world. And yet, if instead, um, Bitfinex has several, several billions in terms of liquidity, has the highest liquidity in terms of crypto markets, and has is the perfect place where. Companies that are fintech company from 50 million dollars to 500 million dollars in capitalization can actually advertise and sell, uh, raise capital, and start secondary markets for their stocks. You can even raise debt uh, on on our platform as a company. So you you can issue a, do- a bond, for example. You can issue a bond. You can uh, div- uh, give give uh, distribute a coupon yearly and so on and so forth. In fact, the first. Um, customer that we had is um, was Blockstream, that is one of the most uh, known crypto-related uh, firms, and um, we are actually the company behind the um, Volcano Token, that is the famous Volcano Token from El Salvador. El Salvador is uh, is now seeking to raise one billion dollar in uh, as a debt security. Um, and uh, they, are, they declared multiple times that they want to do it with us because we are the only platform that is unique position with our, uh, this new uh, Bitfinex Securities platform to offer that product. So we are the, their technological provider for them to raise the $1 billion token, Vulcano token. So they will use this, this uh, raise in order to you know, invest in part in Bitcoin in part will be invested in um, developing infrastructure for the country. So,
0: yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned sort of the term democratizing financial services. Are you referring to businesses having access to raise capital or consumers investing or you're, you're speaking to both sides of that equation?
1: Both sides of that equation. You know, if you are a small company, let's say 50, 100 million dollar market cap, it's really difficult for you to get listed on an exchange because you have to go through like many different intermediaries. Right, and so every intermediary will want to have a, a, a slice of the pie, and then the costs are, are ballooning. The cost of maintaining that is, is a lot. Is um, is uh, in terms of legal cost, in, in the intermediary cost is is insane. So. Uh, the beauty of uh, the crypto industry and the Bitcoin industry is about trying to reduce at the bare minimum the intermediaries. So of course we our platform has all the KYC and AML processes designed around both the company, the corporate that wants to raise capital, but also the end user that wants to invest. So. In a single place, we can connect both of them, so you don't have to go through all these road shows and, uh, um, and pay a ton of money just to raise, you know, two, three million dollars. We proved the concept already. In one week, we were able to raise 10 million dollars for a Blockstream uh, mining note um, in a really simple process, all regulated under Kazakh law, that is based on UK law. So they created this Ashtana financial area that is uh, a new area that um, trying to foster uh, financial development and uh, they, they gave us, uh, the, we are the first company to get this, to, to have gotten this license and we proved the concept already and that's why El Salvador is, is coming to us to raise of course much more than 10 million dollars, 1 billion is going to be a challenge, but it's actually something that will, in my opinion, will prove that uh, the, the crypto industry is actually mature enough to uh, to to provide services that historically have been only allowed or offered through uh, traditional financial services or banks.
0: Yeah, I mean, you raise a good point that, you know, the intermediaries who underwrite these kinds of offerings, whether it's an equity offering, you know, an IPO or a bond sale. So historically, at least in the U.S., companies like Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan, you know, certainly add expense to the process. I imagine that they would argue that, that the value or part of the value that they're supposed to be generating is um, you know, making sure that the offering is legitimate and that the people who are buying those securities, equity, debt securities, you know, understand and have access to information about what they're purchasing. So, I mean, I guess the the question there is, in this scenario where you start removing those traditional intermediaries, how do you still ensure uh, investor protections are achieved? Right, and if you look at some of the things that happened, you know, a number of years back in the ICO space, the initial coin offering space, or some things that are happening today, maybe in the NFT world, you could make an argument that removing all of these investor protections has resulted in you know negative outcomes for some consumers, some investors, and even actually in the tradition, more traditional space um, with SPAC companies that had a lower bar of regulation versus traditional IPOs. You know, there's an argument to be made that because the information that was disclosed to investors was held to a lower standard, uh, that investors were potentially deceived about what they were purchasing. So, I mean, I guess the question there is, how do you take the inter- intermediaries out to achieve those efficiencies while still ensuring that investors, consumers, uh, are treated fairly or protected when they're putting money in El Salvador's volcano bond or in, you know, a company raising equity through a
1: Kazakh, uh, like Kazakh financial market. So this is actually a really good question. So I, com- I completely agree with you that uh, the crypto industry has been flawed for many years about scams. Right? We have seen rat pool scams and so on. So there is a lot of good things. Uh, Bitcoin and, um, and 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 stable coins and many interesting projects, but there are also many that are. You know, given that there is a really low bar to launch a new crypto project, you find a lot of scams. But so what we are talking about here is actually regulated products, regulated under a really strict regime. In fact, you know, the the Kazakh regulator is imposing really strict rules about the key information document and the disclosures. about. So we are talking about quarterly disclosures that has to be shared with all the investors. There, is, um, there are strict rules, again, this this is all based under UK law and, you know, the fact that uh, we are talking about Kazakhstan doesn't mean that they are not actually uh, really thorough in the assessment. In fact, they given, given, didn't give us, you know, the... The uh, any they enforced on us a really limited uh, process in which so we are basically part of a sandbox. So they are monitoring us every single step that we are doing. So we cannot take a new project on board and raise one billion for them, right? If we raise, if we need to raise one billion, we have to work with a project to justify why that is, uh, why that cap what, what are the disclosures what is what is been doing what they are doing for customer protection how they can enforce customer protection and so on and so forth also um, is actually in order to, also in the. US in order to enforce customer protection is more to the regulator rather than the banks right? It's not that J.P. Morgan never sold, you know, or or others never sold um, lower-level grade investments. So it's all about the money in the end, right? So uh, it's the regulator, like at the SEC, that will review the actual um, the actual project, the al- actual company, and decide what is legitimate or not. And uh, it took enormous amount of effort to get to the re- to to have the regulator to. Uh, be comfortable with what with their offering, because again, the fact that they are in Kazakhstan doesn't mean that they are not mm-hmm. as thorough as other jurisdictions. And the same thing will it uh, uh, will be true for for El Salvador.
0: I mean, you do raise a really interesting idea, which is the you know dispersion or decentralization of where capital raising or capital markets activities occurs. Right, historically, London, New York major financial centers where these things happen under the jurisdiction of, you know, American or British law, Uh, the idea that, you know, whether it's cryptocurrency or some other platform even, you know, enabling those activities to take place efficiently at, at lower amounts, right, a point you raised earlier where is you know, it really difficult to go and raise a 10 or 20 million in an IPO because the fixed cost of underwriting and issuing those securities are so high. So I do think you make a really good point about the you know potential for technology to make essentially smaller financing activities
1: viable that historically would not have been yeah and keep in mind that uh, the world is not about uh, all the U- the US or necessarily Europe we want to focus in all the emerging markets so may- for if it is difficult for an European company to raise 20 million, Imagine in Latin America, in Argentina, in Brazil, in, uh, in in El Salvador, or in Venezuela, in Turkey, in Africa, right? In Africa raise 2 million dollars is impossible, right? So um, especially if you are not a crypto company, because keep in mind that we don't want to be a platform for, to raise capital for crypto companies, we want to be a platform um, for, to raise capital for actual companies that are in emerging markets that dedicate their efforts to the developing of uh, economies in these developing in, in emerging markets. That's that's the m- missing piece that we are in a unique position to serve, in my opinion. So the role that Bitfinex plays
0: in this specifically uh, in this um, Kazakhstan example, you're the platform that facilitates the issuing of either like an equity like security or a debt like security and then manages trading on the secondary market but the actual as i understand it, the actual regulatory regime and any sort of supervisory enforcement etc would be you know the the province
1: of the Kazakhstan government do i have that right that's correct so we are the the technological platform on which this all happens so we you you we we, we create the meeting point for the issuers and the, the, the customers. By the way, we, it's not that we can only serve Kazakh-based companies, yeah. so um, we can serve companies all around the world, apart from the US, uh, and a few other jurisdictions for all the prohibited jurisdictions and so on. So um, that's something that is extremely new, and I expect that in the next years will boom at this market. Interesting, interesting. Um...
0: Changing topic a little bit, you mentioned uh, that you're going to be speaking on some recent product developments uh, here at Money20. Can you tell us a little bit about
1: what you're going to be talking about on stage? Sure. I will uh, talk about how um, still, you know, um, based on what we said before, uh, crypto exchanges are actually um, platforms that are made of development or innovation. Of um, consumer-centric uh, um, development, their their actual um, reason to exist. So, with um, with Bitfinex, we started seeing a big lack of uh, in the markets about um, on, on on crypto payments or actually payments for for e-commerces and for actual all the private sector. Right? You go. Imagine that you go to um, the um, to the physician or you go to the um, uh, barbershop, you still, you won't be able to accept um, uh, payments in crypto. The crypto market is a huge market. It counts from, uh, it, it peaked at $3 trillion in terms of uh, market cap. Now it's averaging around $1, $1. $1.5 trillion. It's still a lot of money. So it means that there is a lot of money that is in the pockets of wealthy people but also not even wealthy people that needs to be spent so we are seeing you know we are seeing really two different sides of the story we are seeing um in dubai uh, important apartments are sold, sold in crypto but also we are seeing in el salvador or in in argentina we are seeing how stable coins are used as a a day-to-day payment system right so especially in so on one side you have you know the, the wealthy guys again on the other side you are people that uh, really are, they are called the unbanked these are people that have at the end of the month they they are they really have hard time to say because they don't have a fully fledged bank account why because they are too poor to have a bank account the reason why they are too poor to have a bank account is that the cost of of maintaining a bank account is insane nowadays. Because the the there are two problems is or what well, the main problem is actually the the fact that uh, the 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 infrastructural cost of banks is going through the roof because they have a technical debt uh, accrued over the last thirty years. I mean, I talk to developers that work in banks, right, and they they have to keep using rubber and bands to keep everything together. I mean, you look at uh, the websites, of the biggest uh, banks, and they are really, you know, takes ages to load a page, why? Because they, they, they kept working and adding stuff on top of COBOL, and on top of all these crazy old platforms, because, and they, so they need more and more developers. They, all the KYC and AML processes are extremely slow not and the crypto industry have developed um KYC and ml processes that are much faster not because they are less thorough in fact for example if you go on, on Bitfinex, you will see that we ask much more information and we are much more uh precise and uh, and uh, and hammering you on the details on on your wealth on, on the source of wealth and so on compared to banks still the way it is designed, the way it is explained, the way we collect documents is much more uh, efficient. So that will allow customers and merchants to to start onboarding with us and have a new way to collect payments, right? Mm-hmm. And so we on, on one side, just to connect to what we were saying before, you have like people in in like they have grocery shops in in, in Venezuela. They won't accept stable point payments. They won't tether. in Venezuela You go in in Venezuela. Mm-hmm. Tether is the third currency, and that's true for Venezuela, Argentina, Brazil, and Salvador, and Turkey, and India. Right? This is basically one of the top three, four currencies used in these countries. If you go to any shop, they know. If you tell Tether, they know exactly what you are talking about. So we start seeing the interest of uh, of merchants to start accepting these um, uh, these stablecoin payments, and also, of course, between other cryptocurrencies payments, but they don't have the technological infrastructure to do so. So that's why we started to develop Bitfinex Pay, that is our fully-fetched pay- payment solution. It works for merchants and e-commerces. So you have, you go in e-commerce, you can include Bitfinex Pay as a checkout method. And it works to, for, for the person in the groceries that you have in your uh, mobile application, you, you just put an, an amount, the currency will show you a QR code and someone you know, with a wallet can pay you in Tether, can pay you in Bitcoin, with Lightning like Network and so on and so forth. So that is the future of payment. And again, we go back to the idea of removing intermediaries. So you pay with Tether or Tron, you pay like one cent for, one cent for a transaction that usually you would pay 3% in Europe as a as transaction cost, or even much more if you are in Latin America or Turkey and so on. Because of course, um, the, the um, debit card, credit card companies will, uh, will rip you off, right? So, so that's, that's why what we are developing and what we are promoting here.
0: I mean, I think that 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 makes a lot of sense, particularly in countries or in economies where, you know, the currency has a history of perhaps being less stable, particularly places like Argentina, Venezuela, um, Cuba. Um, I mean, one last question, since you mentioned Tether, uh, and we can wrap up there. Recently, you know, the algorithmic stablecoin Terra collapsed, you know, a lot of market cap, a lot of wealth was essentially evaporated. Uh, Tether, of course, is different, there are assets backing it, can you just sort of briefly explain some of those differences, why they're important, sure. uh, and what role, if any, regulation should play in ensuring the stability of a stablecoin?
1: Man, how much time do you yeah, have? I know. <laughs> do all that in two minutes. <laughs> okay, so um, Tether was the first stablecoin. So Tether created the entire market of stablecoins in 2014. So. Uh, we are quite proud of that. Um, so, I started always with this speech because um, now we are seeing um, central banks using our technology um, uh, to create potential CBDCs, mm-hmm. right? Central bank um, digital currencies. But, um, you know, um, the, the entire idea around a stable coin is that you create a cryptocurrency called stablecoin that will need to follow. The price of a national currency. In the case of Tether USDT, the national currency is the dollar. We have Tether Euro, and we just launched Tether Mexican Pesos. So, um, in order to follow the price, is the most important thing that you have to do is that every time someone wants back their money, you know, wants to redeem their money from the stablecoin, you have to pay the the nominal price that is the one dollar so every token has to be paid out at the, the the nominal price of the of the national currency so um tether works in a simple way you have you send us one hundred thousand dollars we give you one hundred thousand dollars tethers you send us back one hundred thousand tethers we give you send you back one hundred thousand dollars there is a small fee uh, for you know for of course issuance and redemptions but that's it right simple as that in order for us to give you uh, $100,000 back means that our portfolio that is backing the Tether stablecoin has to follow as close as possible the dollar, right? That's why our portfolio is composed by US treasuries or commercial papers that are following, that are all based in in dollars that are following the the dollar market. And also if we have cash, we have cash deposits and so on. Um, The Terra team instead. Created two things, Luna, that is their own token, a token that they created that does almost not have any uh, backing or not not have any you know uh, underlying strength or an underlying um, um, uh, let's say um, buying power. And um, on the other side, they cre- they use this token that again they created to create a stable co- their own stable coin. Algorithmic stablecoin, so-called. So, basically, they, they created this stablecoin that was worth 18 billion dollars, backed by a token for the majority by this token, Luna, that again, uh, that doesn't didn't have any strong fundamentals. Um, if you have U.S. Treasuries in your wallet, as we do in Tether, you can see that uh, you can you know the, the backing of the U.S. Treasuries are the U.S. economy and the Fed will always buy back uh, these treasuries, all the biggest banks always buy these US treasuries at the uh, value at which, you know, at the $1 value, right? So there is no slippage if you sell them. But with Luna, it all depends from the crypto markets. So, um, Luna was easily subject to an attack three weeks ago. So a group of traders, you know, there is a lot of speculation on who these traders are, Took. Uh, borrow Luna from from the market and start selling this Luna short. They started selling this Luna short, and that caused the Luna the Terra team, the stablecoin Terra team, to have to uh, defend the peg. Because of course, if the majority of your backing is Luna, and the price of Luna is going down, means that you have a problem. If the price of Luna is going down. Now you have they try, they started themselves so their team started to sell Luna to try to get dollars to reduce the um, to reduce the risk of the portfolio, but doing that they they push the price of Luna even farther down, but that you create a cascade liquidation in this way, and that creates also a bank run. So here's the interesting thing: the same or a different group of traders try to do the same thing with Tether because they thought, okay, we did it with Luna or Terra, let's try it with Tether. Because, of course, there was a lot of speculation around Tether as well. And the speculation for me was nonsense. We had, we have attestations that are quarterly attestation, they're the industry standard disclosures for stable coins. We provide our information, we are the only stable coin that provide our information, that provides its information on the operativity and backing, to the New York Attorney General that is a regulator in New York. Uh, so we have already the highest scrutiny. But we did uh, we did something that uh, in the last three weeks we did one thing that no banking institution in the re- recent financial history was able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in 2008 there was a bank called Washington Mutual that had to redeem in, in 10 days 10% of their assets, right? And they went bankrupt. We in two days, Tether in two days, was subject to a potential uh, bank run like scenario because of some traders started to attack Tether, selling it short on the market and arbitrageurs started to buy cheap Tethers, redeeming for $1, taking the dollars, sending back to the exchanges, buying cheap Tether and so on and so forth, creating a loop. And that was an attempt to test Tether. And in two days, in 48 hours, Tether was able to process seven billion dollars in redemptions. That it was 10% of our assets without the blink of an eye. So we passed from being, you know, you know, having customers asking question, okay, but what what happens with Tether? Are you know are are you backed? Right, right questions. We have, but you know again we had all the information, all the disclosures and so on. We are now the only. We demonstrated not just with paper what we are capable of we have now we are the only institution that have by a fact and tried we trial by fire the ability or redeeming any amount of money because we we we, you know the demand was 7 billion in in 48 hours and 10 billion in in around uh, uh, seven days, 10, 11 billion around seven days, but actually we demonstrated that we not not only we had all the money that, uh, as always we said, we are our infrastructure, our banking infrastructure, our risk management infrastructure, and so on and so forth, is of the highest quality, highest grade in the industry, not just in the crypto industry but in the, in the financial industry. Because again, the the time when the banks were tried with that, they failed. The banks are we as a tether and a stable coin. We are subject to a much higher bar from from regulators than the banks. The banks can go fractional reserves, can can do over leveraging. We cannot, right? Every time there is a customer that comes to us, we have to give back the money. We never refused one single redemption in our history, and even more so in the last three weeks. By the time, so we were able. When someone was coming to us for redemption, asking for redemption, we were processing their redemption within one hour. So, of course, there is a KYC AML process, right? Someone comes to you with $200 million to redeem, you you want to ask a couple of questions, of course, and then you have to process the withdrawal. And we didn't only test ourselves, but we tested our banks, so we, we tested the Solidity of our banks, the all the you know, with dealing with US dollars, you have intermediary banks that have to process the wire and also you have the receiving banks that have to be happy with your due diligence and KYCML process. So right now we are the of course we always said that, but we demonstrated we hard with hard facts that we are the most solid, transparent and proven stablecoin and financial industry in the world.
0: There you have it, folks. Uh, Listen, I know you're a busy guy and you have a lot lot of stuff to do in the rest of your money 2020. Where can people find out more about you and find out more about Bitfinex?
1: So they can find more about Bitfinex on uh, Twitter, I would say, on our uh, website, bitfinex.com, on our Twitter handle, at Bitfinex. Myself, I'm at Paolo Arduino. um, You should follow me at least for the memes. Follow him for the memes, folks. Thank you so much.
0: that's it for the first installment of fintech business podcast i want to thank Paolo for taking the time to speak with me and the entire money 2020 team for putting together an amazing event as a reminder if you're interested in being a guest or sponsoring an episode feel free to drop me a line at jason at fintechbusinessweekly.com until next time this has been jason mikula and thanks for listening